There's a tremendous amount of scholarship around the concept of negotiation. It's a critical component in the study of business and international relations. Indeed, it's taught here at the Kennedy School. So it might come as some surprise that in the field of political science, negotiation has up until now been largely ignored. But for those of us who have been watching the polarization and gridlock in the U.S. Congress, legislative negotiation seems to be more important than ever. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by Kennedy School Professor Jane Mansbridge, who last year served as president of the American Political Science Association and just recently co-edited a report titled Negotiating Agreement in Politics. Jenny, thanks for joining us. Oh, so glad to be here. So this report went back and measured Congress's increasing party polarization. Um, can you explain how it actually measured it, what the metric was, and how does today compare with the past? Yeah, that's one chapter in the report. It's a pretty simple metric, which is just what percentage of people vote with the other party uh, at any given time. And the percentage of people voting with the other party has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. So that we are now at a level of polarization higher even than back at the turn of the century when it was really high. So when did that start? Around 1970, and uh, it's just getting become more and more and more polarized. It was set off uh, in great part um, by Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act, because before that time, um, quite a lot of Southerners, uh, Democrats were conservative, quite a lot of Republicans were liberal, and then as the Southern conservatives moved over to the Republican Party, the parties became more homogeneous, what we call coherent, meaning that you're going to find many fewer conservative, um, you're going to find many fewer conservatives in the Democratic Party, many fewer self-proclaimed liberals in the Republican Party than you used to. So if this is something that's been going on since the 1970s, I mean, is is it about time for that to to break? I mean, are we do we have any kind of uh, you know bipartisan utopia coming up in the future? Uh, I wish we could. I could say yes, but I think this is the new normal. Um, one thing we might see a change in. I don't know. That's uh, is that since 1980, the parties have become more and more contested. Used to in the House and, and the Senate. Used to be that. Um, Republicans would often get the presidency, but the Democrats kind of generally had, over time, a little bit of a majority in the House and Senate. And that meant that it was behooved the minority party to kind of get along with the party that was going to be a majority. But as the part parties have come closer and closer to being able to take over the House and or the Senate in the next election, it's to each of their strategic advantage to keep the majority party, whether the majority party is a Democrat or Republican, to keep that majority party from really doing anything. Because then they can run for election against you know, people who didn't do anything. Um, so in addition to the fact that the parties have become more homogeneous and coherent and fewer, much less of a mix within each party, there's also this completely separate factor, which is that they've become very much more competitive. And the competition gives them another reason to polarize, to not let the other party do anything, to not work. And that could change if the Republicans began to get a consistent majority in the houses or the democrat in the house and Cong and the senate or um the you know either party then that might change but i'm not expecting it to change soon and i'm certainly not expecting the whole issue of the southern realignment to change so i think this is the new normal 
So if polarization is basically inevitable, if it's the new normal, uh, does that necessarily mean gridlock is the new normal? Yes, it does. So what, I mean, I guess this brings it back to the idea of negotiation, because if, you know, a minority party sees only benefit in obstruction, and that it could be the Republicans or the Democrats, whoever happens to be in the minority, uh, how can negotiation bridge that gap? It's really hard. And that my, our argument is not that it's going to be simple, but our argument is just that because there's this new normal of polarization, because there's new this so many incentives not to work together, we've got to try much, much harder than we've ever tried in order to kind of overcome what is very strong underlying structural reasons to not be bipartisan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I as I said in the introduction, negotiation really has been somewhat ignored in political science up till now, but it really seems key to working within this kind of system. Totally. So, how how is this is this report kind of starting off a new uh, new age where we're going to look into <laughs> negotiation more? Or? I hope so. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Some of these uh, chapters in this report are are the first time these issues have been looked at. So, in my own field, which is democratic theory, which is why we ought to be Democrats. What What is the theory around that? This is the first time there's ever been a serious consideration of how do we fit in certain questions about negotiation? And I can go into those later if you want, but things like privacy. We've been all for transparency. Democ- democracy and transparency seem to almost be identical. It seems to come with democracy. But now we know that negotiations need privacy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, how do you balance that? Mm-hmm. That's what this that's that's some the stuff that this chapter on the theory of democracy has taken up, but also a new a chapter on making deals in Congress. Believe it or not, there hasn't been really an overall look at making deals in Congress. How how does Congress do this kind of negotiation writ uh writ in written in detail, the reason I hesitate here is because um, we do have some work on the mathematical modeling, the formal modeling of, of bargaining in Congress. Um, but that is not about how people actually do the negotiation. It's a kind of it's an important, thin formal model uh, based on some simplifying assumptions, like everybody's out for their own self-interest mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. Um, but the actual study of kind of how do people get in there and negotiate, that's right. been done by journalists, not by political scientists usually. That seems a little bit mind-boggling given that, you know, the, we're filled with anecdotal uh, history of, you know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan coming up with, with deals on big issues. So what, what's been stopping the field from studying that? Well, you're exactly right. We've got a lot of of journalist evidence. We've got a lot of memoirs. We've got a lot of people been in politics talking about what happened to them. But you haven't got political scientists standing back to make sense of it. And I think part of that is because you don't have much of a quantitative record. Pretty much everything goes on behind closed doors, as it should. Mm -hmm. But because it goes on behind closed doors, then you don't have much of a, a record. Right. Um, and you certainly don't have a quantitative record the way you do with with like roll call votes for mm-hmm. political scientists to kind of figure out what's going on using the quantitative roll call votes. Now, it seems some of this uh, is peculiar to the American system because we have, you know, a two-party system, whereas, for instance, in Europe, they have, um, you know, uh, uh, 
parliamentary systems where negotiation is essential to getting anything done. Um, is there some lessons that we can kind of learn from from those kinds of systems and bring them to the United yeah, States? Yeah, absolutely. And and there is a chapter, again, the first chapter that tries to draw lessons on negotiation from the European system to apply elsewhere. And some of the big lessons learned are, uh, one I mentioned already, uh, allow privacy. Mm-hmm. But another, much equally important, if not much more important or is um, repeated interaction. You've got to have people who know one another to, re- to work together over time. Um, you've got to have institutions that bring people together in private, I, uh, people who've known each other and worked on problem A who are now working on problem B, and then they'll go on to work on problem C. Mm-hmm. So we can learn about repeated interactions. Um, we can also learn about um, having kinds of penalties if you don't um, uh, do the, and we can have learned f- about the use of technical experts. We have things like the Congressional Budget Office in the U.S., but it's beca- even even the Congressional Budget Office has come under attack. It's tremendously important to have the kind of technical expertise that both parties can agree. Mm-hmm. It's producing real facts. It seems like things like uh, uh, privacy and bargaining is, is, is really difficult when you have a culture where people are just tweeting things out. How can we actually put these, these ideas into play in a way that might actually affect positive change? This is a long-run solution, but I think we need to change the culture. I think we need to have American citizens and American members of Congress, representatives of all sorts, politicians, realize how important negotiation is. So that person who's going to Twitter should think twice because they should think, how am I going to ruin the negotiation by this? Nobody thinks that now. Nobody thinks, who, if you're running for congressman, you know, is Matt going to be a good negotiator? Mm-hmm. People don't think that. But if we begin to really put negotiation f- first or high on our agenda as citizens mm-hmm. and as representatives and say, how can we use – because negotiation is something where you use your critical intelligence. It's not just a matter of compromising in the sense of four is in between five and three. It's a matter of trying to think out new ways of, of approaching things. And that's what our representatives can do because they're smart people. But we have to kind of empower them and say, go, use mm-hmm. your creative intelligence. Go and negotiate. Find out solution, you know, solve problems for us. Right. There's an interesting graph in in the report that is kind of separate from the negotiation part. Um, it talks about the history of the polarization in Congress and how it seems to mirror, in some ways, economic inequality. Now, it doesn't see it doesn't establish a causation, but there seems to be some correlation between them. Can you explain what that's all about? It's very hard to explain what that's all about. Um, inequality lags uh, the polarization a bit, but it seems it's quite possible that somehow uh, some people having a lot of money in the, in the system um, drives the system toward polarization. For example, a l- increasing number um, amount of funding for any kind of uh, congressional race comes from out of the district. We've got a little graph in there that shows just the out of district funding just shooting up over time. And that's that's going along with polarization. So it's quite possible that as we have more inequality in the country, um, that that inequality produces more people who've got a lot of discretionary income to give to 
politics, and that when that money goes into politics, the people who give money to politics have more extreme views than people who don't. Um, you know, I give money to politics. I have more extreme views than somebody who doesn't, because you've got to care a lot to right. take money out of your pocket that you could spend on yourself and just send it a check off to whatever, to politics. Mm-hmm. So if you, those people who care a lot tend to be a little bit more on the extremes. And so if you've got people pouring money into politics from the extremes, mm-hmm then that's probably going to be a cause of polarization. So is that also a function of, you know, with a polarized gridlock-based uh, Congress, obviously you don't get a lot done. Um, a lot of the lower end of the economic spectrum relies on on support from the federal government. Is there any kind of tie-in with that? We don't know. Um, you Fair know, I hate to, I hate to say what <laughs> no, we have no. is this correlation. But, you know, this incredible. If you've seen the report, so you see the incredible U-shaped mm-hmm. curve of polarization. Polar. The Congress was very polarized back at the turn of the century, the last century, mm-hmm. and now it's polarized back at the you know at this century. And in the middle, it was it was not polarized at all. It was really bipartisan. Sure. Well, I don't think it has to do with the turn of the century. You know, the, the fact that the years somehow ended up zero zero zero. Mm-hmm. There's something. Going going on. And then you put on top of that a graph of inequality. And back in the days of the robber robber barons, we were a very unequal country. And now we're just as unequal as as we were back in the days of the robber barons, Mm -hmm. when all those huge mansions in Newport were built and so forth. We're just as unequal now, and it follows very similarly this polarization graph. But we don't know what exactly the causal relationship is. So our listeners can actually find a link to the report and some of these graphs uh, on our blog at uh, hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. Um, But before we go, I want to ask just as we move forward, is there anything that we can look to as you know some kind of sign of hope? I mean, if we're talking about this inevitable new, uh, the new reality, um, what is there anything out there for us? Yeah, I think so. Americans are smart. Members of Congress are smart. You know, I, th- I think that when people realize the structural bind we are in, um, people can understand, okay, we really got to take some lessons from the negotiation literature you talked about. Yes, mm-hmm. we teach negotiation here at the Kennedy School. And any, everything I said about privacy, repeated interactions, technical experts, et cetera, et cetera, um, this isn't rocket science, but it hasn't been paid attention to. So I'm a hopeful person. Um, it's a it's a very, very difficult structural situation. The new normal does not look good. So we're going to have to try much, much harder. But I think we can. Well, Jenny Mansbridge, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. <laughs> My pleasure. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast.